If you would, church, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. And when I say page number, I want somebody to shout it out. And that applies to my whole sermon. Somebody, somebody pull out the pew Bible, you'd be my page number person today. If you don't have a Bible, you've got a pew Bible right in front of you that you can use. Leave that one there, but if you need a Bible, just let one of the ushers know and they can give you one after the service to keep. No, Tony, there's a pew Bible right in front of you. Yep, there you go. No, you can't keep that one. Put that one back, but, but uh, we'll give you another. How many Bibles do you have on your shelf at home right now? First Corinthians chapter 6. No, we'll give you, give you a Bible after the service. I just don't want you to have your hand up the whole time. <laughs> First Corinthians 6. Page number. 897. All right, 897. All right, we're going to start with this heavy passage, and we're going throughout a lot of different passages today, so I'm going to ask you to try to follow along as we go. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, it says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I want to preach to you this morning on the topic of conversion. Let's pray and ask God for his help. Pray with me. Father, again, we ask that you would help us as we, as we come into your word, that you would help me to speak your truths with clarity and with passion, that you would open our hearts to receive it and to be shaped by it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Once a cheater, always a cheater. Let me tell you a story of a man named Fred. Fred was in a relationship with a young woman, was hoping to marry her, and she cheated on him. Fred got together with his friends, miserable and heartbroken was hoping for a word of encouragement. And his friend said, once a cheater, always a cheater. Get away from her. Stay away from her, Fred. Can a cheater change? These are rhetorical questions. Can anyone change? Can a thief change? How about a murderer? Can a fornicator change? How about a wife abuser? Can someone who's addicted to pornography change? Can someone in a committed same-sex relationship change? Will a racist always be a racist? How about those good people, quote-unquote, good people, who look great on the outside, very moral, very ethical, yet filled with pride and arrogance, people of anger, people who are manipulative? Can they change? It's generally understood today that you, what, what you do 
is who you are. Meaning, sins today, what the Bible would call sin, sins today are not only normalized, but sins are identity markers. Meaning, I just am an angry person. I am an unfaithful person, a cheater. The list goes on. Sometimes that we you say this in a positive way. Other times we would refer to this in a very negative way. Now, I don't know if in our day today we're dealing with an issue of morals being loosed, which they are, but morals have always kind of been loosed in culture. There's been, there have been many immoral cultures before this one. Or I wonder if we could think of today as an era of disillusionment. Meaning, with all of the progress that we made through science and through psychology and, 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 and through the arts and, and uh, th through medicine and, and, and th with all of our progress, through seeking to achieve peace among man and decrease wars in the world, through uh, having healthier foods, with all of our progress, we still can't seem to change destructive behaviors and behaviors that people want to change. And so I'm just wondering if maybe what we're dealing with is an era of disillusionment, where what we've said is we can't change. We actually are the way we are, and we might be able to make a better version of ourselves. We might be able to get ourselves together and correct some, some things that might not be so culturally appropriate, but at the end of the day, it's, our, it's who we are. Part of the problem is that people are burned out by religion. Religion says, live according to these rules, and therefore you will live like a Christian. And so people have tried that, and they don't live like a Christian, and so then they've rebelled against it, and they say, I can't change, I can't live by the rules. This is who I am. This very much so feels a part of me. I can't change. And so then we are left with a world of pessimism. Now maybe I'm preaching to the choir this morning. Meaning maybe people who come to church tend to be the kind of people that believe we can change. Maybe people who come to church tend to be the kind of people who even want to change. Perhaps you're, you're, you, 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 you feel this deep sense in your own being of, I should change, and you stumbled this morning into yet another church hoping to find maybe a silver bullet for change or something that could help you get rid of or change some practices in your life. If it's true that God is calling a people to himself, all right, and if it's true that these people that God is calling to himself are to be marked off, of, off as a holy people, well, then it's true that people must somehow change. But the question, though, then becomes, how are these people made? How are these people created? So this morning, we're part, in this series, this is part three of a series called Peculiar People. It's a series on what, a, what marks a healthy church. The first week, we looked at the gospel, how God saves a people. That's how people are saved. The second week... I'm sorry, the first week we looked at expositional preaching. And that's how a people are shaped. Last week, the second week, we looked at the gospel. And that's how God's people are saved. This week what we're doing is we're looking at the topic of conversion. And that is how God's people are made. How God's people are created. 
spiritually, that is. So, three points I want to draw out on the doctrine of conversion today. And that is because a healthy church is a church that has a right understanding of this doctrine. I don't want to get all heady today, but I want to appeal to your minds and hopefully, Lord willing, connect it with your hearts so that we understand that this is not just theology for the sake of theology. But that if we rightly understand conversion, we'll have a healthier church. All right? Three points. I'll give them to you right now. Conversion is essential. Conversion is supernatural. And conversion is transformational. Let me walk through them with you. Number one, conversion is essential. It's essential. Conversion is essential. We all learned what that word meant and means in 2020 when you had to go into work on a snow day because you were an essential employee, right? Your company can't go on without you. Evidently, there was nobody in this room, I guess. <laughs> essential means we've got to have this doctrine right. Conversion is essential, meaning this, we need change, and we won't change without conversion. Let's just start off with the fact that we need to change. Going back to the, the scripture I read this morning, 1 Corinthians 6, what we see here in this text is that we won't inherit the kingdom without change. 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians rather, chapter 6, is giving us a list of the kinds of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Meaning they will not be saved. When they die, they will not be in heaven. They will not live with God for all of eternity. Let's look at the list. He says, first, sexually immoral. Those who are living in sexual immorality. Those who are committing acts of sexual gratification outside of the confines of a marriage between a husband and a wife. Idolaters. Those who have pledged an allegiance to a higher authority in their minds, they've placed something else above God. Adulterers. Those who are committing acts of sexual gratification outside of their marriage. Homosexuality. Those who have given oneself over to the desires for the same sex. Thieves. Greedy. Drunkards. Those who are using substances to achieve a high or a state of drunkenness. Leaning into a substance instead of leaning into God. Revilers. Those who despise and destroy the people of God, the things of God. Willfully or sometimes even involuntary, subconsciously, if you would. Swindlers, meaning manipulators and cheats. Like, Paul can't be any clearer. These people will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not be in heaven. They will not be saved. That's what he's saying. This is an example list. It's, it's not an exhaustive list. Meaning, he's not trying to capture every single kind of individual that will not be saved. But I'll tell you, his example list is pretty exhaustive. You know, he, he really captures, in a sense, doesn't he, all, so many of our, our, our fleshly tendencies and so many of our fleshly temptations. And just in case you feel like your own fleshly tendency and temptation is not found on this list, what about that word unrighteous? He starts off with saying, all of the unrighteous. Anybody who is not perfect in their obedience to God. Anybody with sin. All of the unrighteous. And then he gives this little list will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul, Paul is skillfully sweeping really everybody 
into this bucket and saying, these folks are doomed if they don't change. Our, our problem now is actually much worse than we thought. The problem is not just, you know, let me change some habits. Let me change some little aspects of my life, some things I don't like about myself. Let me change some things my mom doesn't like about me. Let me change some things my church doesn't like about me. No, our problem is actually worse than we thought. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Meaning, in our original state, we are, we are dead. We are spiritually dead. As a result, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18 says, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness, the callousness of their hearts. Meaning, your deadness, is, it's not a physical deadness, it's a spiritual issue. So in the same way that your heart physically is beating right now, which is true for all of us, I can tell, I'm just looking around the room. All right, some of you nodding off, I'm not so sure about, but just, you know, give them a little bump and make sure that the heart's still beating, if you would, amen? For some, uh, or for all of us, you know, our hearts are, are beating, and there is blood flowing through our hearts, very much so alive physically, alive in our intellect, and alive in our emotions, and this is why humans still created in the image of God, have this amazing capacity to love and to do good things in the world because we are physically alive. But listen, spiritual, spiritual deadness, meaning the, the, the part of us, I, I say part of us knowing that it's not like a part, it's, it's the whole of our soul, it's the whole of our being, but the part of us that is able to relate to God and love God and give glory to God and want to have a desire to be with God and, and to obey God and to follow God and to worship God, that part is dead. And that is the most vital part of any human being. Spiritual deadness. Your spiritual heart in, in that state has no heartbeat. It is cold, it is callous, it is hard. And the result of spiritual deadness is, according to Ephesians 4, separation from the life of God. We're not separated from God as if we're hiding from Him and He can't find us. We're separated from His life. And so therefore, under the curse of death, so then, question, how then can we be saved? How can we enter into this kingdom of God? If we're all so doomed. If we are, and maybe I described some of you this morning, how can you enter into the kingdom of God? If what, what he's saying is, is these are the kinds of people that will not inherit the kingdom. How is it possible then for any of us Turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. It's in the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter 3. Some background here. There's a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a real moral kind of guy. He's, he's, a, he's called a Pharisee. He's of the class of people who would have been like, Bible scholars, they loved the Bible, they studied the Bible, they wanted to have the right interpretation of the Bible, they wanted to follow all of the laws of God, and just so they don't break the laws of God, they had an additional couple hundred of their own laws, just to be that careful, to make sure that they were living the kind of life that God required. And Jesus is coming along, and you know he's, who he's clashing with the most? It's the nice people. It's the moral people. It's the people with, with high standards. It's the Pharisees. 
And so the Pharisees' question was, wait a second, if a Pharisee can't enter, inherit the kingdom of God, because, I mean, they are so moral, such high standards, if they can't, how can anybody? That's the question I'm asking. And that's the question when Nicodemus was asking, and Nicodemus was so embarrassed about his question, he comes to Jesus at night. While nobody's looking, while all of his brothers and friends are sleeping, he has a private meeting with Jesus. Now the problem, why, But the, 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 the reason why we must understand the doctrine of conversion is this problem that we cannot inherit the kingdom of God by being nice. By just simply adopting a new culture. By just trying to figure out, okay, what? give me the seven or eight things that Christians do and let me do those things and then therefore I will inherit the kingdom. No. This is why we have churches that are filled with hypocrites. Because they're just trying to be nice. They, they put on the mask. They know how to get themselves together and look good in front of others. They know how to not commit the really bad sins and just simply commit those sins in their heart. They know how to look down on others. And by the way, in these kinds of churches, people don't confess sins to each other. Because if you confess sin in this kind of church, they don't know what to do with you. Because we're supposed to be a happy, perfect group of people. And so it would be better for you to not tell me what you're doing so that I can just look the other way and believe that we don't have to deal with you. Because they don't know what to do about sin. See? It's the problem of, of the Pharisee in the church today. Now, what Jesus says in John 3 is, is that we must not just be nice, but we must be born again. This is what he said. Listen to it. Jesus replies to Nicodemus, chapter, chapter 3, verse 3. Very truly I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are what? Born again. Unless they're born again. And you might be like Nicodemus and be like, well, how is that possible? How can somebody who's old be born again? Nicodemus asks him. He goes on in verse 5. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. Like, what are you talking about? And Jesus says this. He says, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh, meaning your mama, gives birth to flesh, meaning you as a newborn baby. But the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. Spirit physical birth demands a physical mother. Spiritual birth demands birth through a different way. But it's new birth nonetheless. Mez McConnell was with us on Thursday. He was neglected and abused growing up forgotten by his, his mother, abused by his mother-in-law, or his, his uh, stepmother, rather, left in the streets, ended up in gangs, ended up himself being an angry, violent individual. And what he told us on Thursday was that all of the people that would work with him, all the counselors and everybody that would try to save him, would tell him, you're a good guy. You're a good kid. The problem isn't that you're bad. The problem is that you're a good person who's had all of these bad things happen to you, and what you're doing is just a response to all of those bad things. He said that's all he heard until he went to jail after hurting somebody. Was in a maximum security prison heard the gospel through these, people, these men who kept witnessing to him. He got a Bible, was reading through Romans, and he said, Paul told me something that nobody else told me. And he said he didn't like it at first. He hated it. Because what Paul said was that you're actually bad. 
What Paul said is that no matter your background, the reason you're doing what you're doing is because of a heart rebellion against God. That all of us, those of us with a good background and those of us with a bad background are rebels against God. That's what he was saying. And that is what led to his conversion. That is what led to him saying, wow, I need not just behavioral modification, I need some kind of new birth. I need a whole new life. It's not just getting yourself together. It's not just being better. It's not becoming the best version of yourself. But what we need is new birth. Now, so, so conversion, everybody say conversion, so we're on the same page here. Conversion, that's what we're talking about. Conversion is to be born again. In the same way that you came through the birth canal of your mother, and you were birthed and brought forth into this world as a naked, little, helpless baby, given to your mother and nursed by her. In, in the same way, in the same way, you need the same kind of emergence event, like a whole new life to come through the birth canal of regeneration, to be born as a spiritual babe, to be nursed by the pure milk of the Word, to be given life by the Holy Spirit, to be born again. Some quick application here before we move on. First, nobody's born a Christian. You're born physically, you're born spiritually dead. Nobody's born a Christian, meaning... Like, I don't know how many times I've been talking to somebody like, hey, tell me how you became a Christian. And the response is something like, oh, I've always been a Christian. And we got to work through that and talk through that, you know. And maybe that's your response right now. Well, I've always been a Christian. And I'm just saying, no, you haven't. (laughs) If you are a Christian now, you haven't always been a Christian. I'm going to tell you that right now. Because we are all born spiritually dead. And so conversion is not something that we just are like you know you could be born an american or you could be born nigerian or you you could be born into some religions you could be born muslim you could be born jewish like into these cultures but christianity is not a culture christianity is not an ethnicity christianity is not a citizenship uh, a, a physical citizenship christianity is spiritual rebirth and so therefore Nobody's born a Christian. It happens at some point. Now, secondly, it happens at some point, meaning conversion is not a process. You know, when were you converted? Well, it was somewhere, you know, my conversion process began at 12, and it was finished at 18. No, conversion is not a process. Conversion must be instantaneous. And you'll, you'll see why the more and more we go. But conversion is something that happens to you. Like your birth, for some of you, your birth might have been a process of like, what, eight hours, perhaps? I feel like one of our new moms had like a 150-hour like labor recently. Was that you, Amy? Welcome, Amy. Welcome. Who was it? New mom. Who had the long, the long labor? Somebody did in our church. Um, good to see the baby here, by the way. Conversion is, is instantaneous. It happens in a moment, all right? Now, third, you may or may not remember when that moment was, and that's okay. Some, for some, conversion is, is very powerful. It, it, like, like they... they, they, they they, they remember the day and the time and the moment that the Holy Spirit arrested their spirit and turned them around and gave them new love and 
life in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they could tell you exactly when it happened. And then others are like, I don't know when I was converted. You know, I was taught the gospel here, and I remember believing here, and I remember believing here, but there was all this weirdness in my life there, and I'm not exactly sure. It doesn't matter if you remember the moment. I'm telling you it was a moment. Does that make sense? And so, so what matters then is not so much whether or not you remember the, the specifics of how and when you were converted. What matters is that you know that you were once dead and now you're alive. That you were once lost and now you're found. That you were once blind and now you see. That you have been converted. Number two, conversion is supernatural. Conversion is supernatural. Turn to John chapter 1, just back a couple chapters. I was witnessing to some friends years ago. She was Muslim, he was agnostic. And at some point, while we were sitting on the couch and I was telling them about Christ, and they asked me, I think they asked, she asked, do you think we're going to hell? And it's like, well, here's a good opportunity to share the gospel with them once again. And so I, I was sharing the gospel with them. And then she cut me off and she said, wait a second, are you trying to convert us? And I, was, I paused. Because I'm thinking, if I say no, then that means it doesn't matter. Be who you are. We're all good to go. If I say yes, then that means that I somehow have the ability to convert them. And I don't. I actually felt needy. I felt helpless with that question. Am I trying to convert them? Is conversion something we do to ourselves? Is, something, is conversion something that we can do to another person? Now, in the Gospel of John, we're hearing of the coming of Christ who brought life. And what John says is that he brought life not to everyone everywhere, but he brought life to some who are the some. Well, verse 12 he says, he brought life to those who received him, who believed in his name. He gave them the right to become children of God. Okay, so let's just tra- track with me so far, all right? That Jesus comes, gives life to those who believe and receive. Are you with me? Question. How did they believe? And receive. How does somebody go from being dead to believing and receiving Jesus Christ? Verse 13, he tells us. He says, Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. You don't give birth to yourself. I don't know why we celebrate your birthday and give you presents and give you a cake and not your mother. And I'm sure your mother pointed that out to you at some point in your life. That's what mothers are supposed to do. And they deserve it. If anybody deserves a cake on January 20th, It's my mother. I did nothing. She did everything. I didn't work for it. It was just a one slippery ride. (laughs) It wasn't my decision. I did I don't I don't even recall the event. I don't remember ever deciding I think I'm gonna come now. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know when they say, like, oh, the baby doesn't want to come yet? It's not the baby's decision. We just use that kind of language. (laughs) 
You see, birth happens, it's, it's a, it is a passive experience. It's something that happened to you. You were born. And so in the same way, we're not born spiritually of human decision. We're not born spiritually of human effort or a husband's will. We're born of God. Let me break this down. Not of natural descent, he says. Meaning your family background doesn't give you new birth. The fact that your mama's a Christian and your grandma's a Christian and your great-grandma's a Christian doesn't give you the new birth. It's not of natural descent. Number two, not of a husband's will. This is interesting. Because certainly there would have been many early Christians, early husbands, who really wanted their wife to be converted. And would do everything they could to plead with her to become a Christian. And what he's saying is, is you can't make somebody saved. You can't, you can't give them five or six things to do. Like you can't, you can't have a wife who just says, you know what, you want me to be a Christian, I'm going to convert to Christianity to make you happy. He's saying it doesn't work like that. Number three, not of human decision. This is mind-wrecking. Not of human decision. Yet everybody says, make a decision for Christ. And he's saying, you're not born again because of your decision. Now, hear me out. There is a decision to be made, but without being born again, you're not able to make that decision. And so therefore, the decision for Christ is a byproduct of conversion and not the cause of it. Meaning conversion cannot be manipulated. Through persuasion, we can, through persuasion, I could probably, I don't know if this is true actually in my case, but I'll say it anyway. Through persuasion, I could probably get my kids to play sports. Like, you, there, like there are a lot of people who grew up playing sports and they didn't want to and they are a reluctant athlete. You know those types. Maybe that was you. You were forced into it. And you're an athlete. But it wasn't your decision. You were made to do it. You cannot, you, you cannot pressure somebody into conversion. You can't do it. I can make my kids come to church. You know, I can persuade my friends to, to give their life to Christ for sure. But I, I, you cannot make somebody a Christian. You cannot produce conversion through manipulation. You cannot play the right kind of music or have the right kind of preaching and create a Christian. A cult leader can create followers through manipulation. A preacher can create followers through manipulation. But a preacher cannot create conversions. And this is why we have to be very careful in how we even present the gospel and call people to believe. Meaning, it's possible to have the right kind of music that stimulate the emotions, that draw people into some kind of emotional thing where they're weeping or perhaps, and, and then you come along with a, the right kind of scary message on hell, and then you ask the kinds of questions, do you want to go to hell? And everybody says, no, I don't want to go to hell. And then if that's you, pray this prayer. And then you give them a prayer to recite, and then you say, if you prayed that prayer, walk this aisle. And then they walk the aisle and they come down and then you tell them, did you mean it when you prayed it? Yes. Okay, you are now converted. Now, somebody will come along and say, hold up, I actually legit was saved that way. Praise God. Praise God. If God can speak through a donkey, God can convert through any means. Are you with me? Like, I know people who were saved, legitimately saved, in prosperity gospel churches. It doesn't mean that the prosperity gospel is a good message to be had. 
So there can be some unwise practices that certainly can lead to genuine conversion, but the problem is the fallout, the broader fallout. Meaning you've got churches that have long lists of members and people who have been baptized, and there's 15 people in attendance. You've got people who, who, who haven't been following Christ for 30 years, and their, their, their uh, aunt says, no, I know that they're a Christian because they said a prayer 30 years ago. We can, listen, um, what I'm saying is this, is we can manipulate an experience, but we cannot make conversion happen. Now, in, in contrast, in contrast, Charles Spurgeon was checking the acoustics at the Surrey Music Hall before they, he, he preached I think it was at the Surrey Music Hall. He was checking the acoustics. He thought he was only, the only person in the room. And so he shouted out, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. And his voice bounced off the walls and a worker who was working in one of the galleries heard those words like a message from heaven to his soul. And, and it's written of him, he says, that this man was smitten with conviction on account of sin. He put down his tools, he went home, and there, after a, a season of spiritual struggling, found peace and life by beholding the Lamb of God. Meaning, when God converts, God converts. Meaning, God may have already converted people in this room this morning. You see what I'm saying? It's actually more powerful than an altar call. It's more powerful than getting somebody to check the right box. It happens like that. Blind eyes in a moment are opened. Deaf ears hear. A heart that's been dead begins to beat. And God gives life. Let me give you another example. He was dead. Lazarus had been dead for three days. Perhaps Mary had been beating on his chest in tears, begging her brother to come back to life. And with all of her human exertion, with all of her own desire to plead with him to wake up, her brother would not wake up from the dead. Mary couldn't wake him up. Lazarus couldn't get up. But when Jesus showed up, somebody say amen. When Jesus showed up three days later after his death, he was first rebuked by Martha for taking his time. By this time, the scholars say that uh, rigor mortis would have been setting into his body. There would have been the stench of decay. And Jesus sees where he is laid, and Jesus simply cries out, shouts out, demands, commands, Lazarus, come forth. And he gets up. And he comes out and takes off the grave clothes. Now, track with me here. Lazarus obeyed the command to get up and come forth. Are you with me? He actually obeyed Jesus. Jesus gave a command. Lazarus obeyed it. <laughs> That's what happened. Meaning, your decision 
to obey Jesus through repentance and trusting in him matters. You do decide to obey him. Like, for all Lazarus felt, it was his work getting up and taking off the grave clothes. And he experienced that. When you're saved, you experience trusting in him. You experienced turning from your sins and walking a different way, walking with Jesus and leaving behind the things of the flesh and the things of the world and following Christ. You experience that. You obey Jesus. But what happened in between Jesus' command to get up and Lazarus getting up? Anybody? He woke up. That's what happened. He woke up. Like be, between Jesus saying, Lazarus, get up, and Lazarus getting up, Lazarus woke up. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive in Christ. God woke you up from the dead. And this isn't just New Testament. This is prophesied all the way back in the Old Testament in Ezekiel when God said in Ezekiel 11, verses 19 through 20, I'm going to put them in them a new heart and a new spirit. Let me read to you how he puts it. He says, then they will follow my decrees. Then they will be careful to keep my laws. Then they will be my people. When? After I put in them a new heart. After I wake them up from the dead, then they will follow me. Then they will be, have the ears and ability to wake up and take off the grave clothes. Oh, how can a dead man dance? How can a dead man shout? But if the sovereign God of the universe who created Adam ex nihilo, out of nothing, out of the dust of the ground, if this same God can breathe into a dead man, he brings them to life, amen. And now the dead man can shout. And now the dead man can dance. When I think about the Lord, how He picked me up and turned me around and set my feet on solid ground, then it makes me want to shout, Hallelujah! Thank you, Jesus. Lord, you're worthy of all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. So check this out. The Pharisaic Christian says, follow the rules and then you'll live like a Christian. Whereas the rebel says, I can't follow the rules, therefore I can never live like a Christian. The doctrine of conversion says, you have been given a new heart, therefore live like a Christian. And so my third and last point is this. Conversion is transformational. It's transformational, meaning it brings change. Why do the statistics tell us that Christians live like the world? Why do the statistics tell us that Christians commit sexual immorality in the same way the world does? Why is it that some churches are run with cutthroat business practices? Why is it that some so-called shepherds abuse the flock? Why is it that so many Christians are filled with anger and violence toward each other and others around them? Why is it that there is a lack of joy in Christ, no joy at all in the things of God? Why is it that there is no love in professing Christians for each other? No love for the lost. No love for the things of God. No love for the church. No love for Christ. No love for God. Why is it that there are addictions that are taking over 
in the lives of some Christians. It's because they've never been converted. That's why. They've never been converted. Well, they are religious, perhaps. They know the rules. They know how to jump through the hoops. They know how to say the right thing. They know how to look the part. But they've never experienced the new birth. You see, conversion is experienced. It's experienced. You, you might not remember or have experienced that very moment of conversion. But conversion is experienced nonetheless. You know that you're converted. You know that you've been given a new birth. Because there's evidence. There's evidence in your life. Like people can look at you and say, yes, we see evidence that you're converted. Lastly, let's, let's turn to 1 John. If you're quick on the draw, because I'm about to close here. 1 John. It's a book that shows the evidence of the converted man. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. What's some of the evidence? Let me just give you four points. Number one, a life free of continual sin. A life free of continual sin. This is what he says. No one is born of God who is born of God will continue in sin. Now notice he doesn't say that they won't sin. John, the same book says if you say that you have no sins, you're deceiving yourself. The same book tells us to confess our sins to one another. What he's saying is, is that in the converted person's life, there is not a continual embrace of sin. And so, saint, friends, if you are continuing in sin, just day after day, you're going after it. That's what you think about. That's what you dream about. You're, I have to ask you to examine your hearts and ask yourself, have you ever experienced this new birth? They do not continue in sin. Because, he says, God's seed remains in them, they cannot go on sinning because they, they have been born of God. There it is. Secondly, they have genuine love. 1 John 4, 7, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The converted person has a genuine love for God. Number three, overcoming the world. 1 John 5, 3 and 4, In fact, this is love for God, to keep His commands. His commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. Oh, this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. We are not overcome by the world, but the converted overcomes the world. Have you ever been converted? Number four, protection from Satan. 1 John chapter 5, verse 18. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. Meaning, as a converted individual, you are protected from Satan. Satan still will seek to defend you, but there is, or I'm sorry, seek to attack you, but there is no temptation that you cannot withstand. You know an apple tree because it gives you what? Apples. You know a Christian because they give you Christian fruit. It's logical. A church that, which understands this rightly understands membership. Membership, you know, in a gathering like this, we want unconverted people to be here. If you're not converted, welcome. Please keep coming. We want you here. Membership for us, the reason we, we talk about membership is membership is for the converted. It's for those who give evidence that they're a Christian, that they've been transformed. The Lord's Supper, baptism, it's for the converted. A, a, a man who, who uh, was a preacher, his name was, was Roland Hill, said, told a story of when a drunk man came up to him and, and said, I'm one of your converts. Roland Hill said, I dare say you are, but you're not one of the Lord's converts. He made a point. 
If you're one of the Lord's converts, there should be evidence. There should be evidence that the Holy Spirit is alive and active in your life, that you are a new creation in Christ. And friends, one of those evidences is that you're willing to confess your sins. A Christian is not a perfect person. A Christian is someone who says, oh, I, I confess my sins. I hate my sins. Have you ever been converted? How is this possible? Well, it's solely the work of God. And you might say, well, that's impossible. To which I say, no, it's not. The fact that conversion is solely the work of God is the only reason it's possible for your life. If it was up to you, you would never be converted. But if it's God who converts, if it's God who gives the new birth, then nobody in this room is beyond the ability to be converted by God. The scriptures, Jesus himself says, the one who comes to me, I will never turn him away. Oh, come to Christ now and know that he will never turn you away. And if you've come to Christ in faith, what I'm saying is this, is that he's converted you. He's given you new birth. The only reason you cry out to God in faith, the only reason you turn to Christ in faith, the only reason you hate your sin is because you've experienced the new birth. You've experienced conversion. And we give God praise for it. Let me close with an illustration I've used before. I used this illustration on Christmas Sunday last year, and since we had nobody there, I'm going to use it again. That's, that's, one of the rules, that's one of the rules in preaching. So around last Christmas, I was uploading a PDF online to turn it into a book. And I was sitting there watching like this online app, waiting for it to turn my PDF into an ebook. And you had this little wheel spinning. And it said, conversion process began. And I'm just waiting for it to convert. Document converting, dot, dot, dot. And I'm waiting. And I waited probably five, ten minutes. And then finally, the wheel stopped, and a little alert came up on the screen, which says, conversion failed, file too difficult to convert. <laughs> Saints, I am here to tell you that God cannot fail in his conversion of you. <laughs> there is nobody in this room for whom God is uh, for whom God would say, oh, you're too difficult to convert. God will take the baddest person in this room and he will convert you, not in five minutes of a spinning wheel, but instantaneously he goes from not mine to mine. Lost to found, blind to open eyes, deaf to ears that hear. The gospel comes then for bad people, not for good people. The gospel comes for the kinds of people that we are, the unrighteous. Those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. But what does he say going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11? After he gives this list of the kinds of people that will not inherit the kingdom, he says, verse 11, he says, but such were some of you. You were these things. These were your identity at one point. These things did mark you. But that's not who you are anymore. You're a new creation. You're a new human. You have a new person. You have a new spirit. You've been created. You've been changed. You've been made by God. Man, if we could get that tattooed on our back. Made by God. He'll fall into his mercy. Lean wholly into his grace. And what will you find? You find the story of so many others. You'll, you'll find that your story is similar to millions and millions of people all around the globe. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke 
and a dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose and I went forth and I followed thee. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Or as we sing, if it had not been for the Lord on my side, where would I be? Where would I be? Amen? Father, we ask that you would help us to seal these truths in our hearts and our minds that we would look to Christ even now. God, I pray for the person for whom this message uh, uh, seemed too difficult, that they would discover today that there is no difficulty for Christ to save us and that we would look to Christ and that we would see him and that we would discover that we've been changed, born again, and that we would take confidence and assurance in this truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.